That is the uh, stated purpose for why we are here. That's our reason for existing, to help each other become more like Jesus. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm thrilled to be with you today and uh, speaking to you. Uh, that was a very Lenten prayer. It's the second Sunday of Lent, and we've been in this series actually since the beginning of January called This is the Way. We're looking at what it means to be part of this beautiful, strange tribe called the church. And the reason why this is so crucial, because more than ever, how the church sees itself, its self-identity, how we see ourselves, it directly affects how the world sees us. If we have an unhealthy or an incorrect view of who we are, well, the world is going to get an incorrect view of who we are because we're going to be showing them the, the worst version of ourselves, right? We want to get this right. Who are we? What are we here for? What's our identity? And now, if you remember from uh, last week's sermon, oh, last week, maybe one of the best sermons ever, right? Um, I'm, I am kidding. We left it on a cliffhanger. And I know so many of you have just been like, oh, I can't wait for part two. I'm kidding about all that. Nobody remembers what we talked about last week. I understand that. Uh, but this is, this is a part two. And so just by way of review, not for you, but you know, that person next to you, they, they need a little refresher. So we, we looked at a very famous parable uh, that Jesus told us about a farmer planting seed in the field and an enemy comes in and plants some bad seed and Gen uh, Jesus comes along and he explains that the good seed represents the people of the kingdom and the bad seed represents people who are not followers of God. And the image Jesus paints is of these uh, two kinds of plants, right? The weeds and the wheat and that are, they look indistinguishable in the beginning. You can't tell them apart until they grow and they start maturing and then you can tell them apart. And in the parable, the workers come to the, the master of the field and they say, do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? It's a pretty good question. And Jesus, through the master, he says, he gives this very enlightening answer. He says, no, let them grow together because you may hurt the good seed if you try to pull up the bad seed. And so uh, this parable is so brilliant because it just addresses this very human temptation we all have for those, all of us, to, especially those of us who are convinced we're the good seed. Uh, so we have this temptation to try to root out the bad seed of the world and Jesus prohibits it. He says, he says no, no, the real work of God's people, uh, when it comes to the outside world, the outside world out there isn't to separate the wheat and the weeds but it's to work towards and focus solely on the good of the field, the whole field. And that means something very strange. It means being a blessing to believers and unbelievers alike, just being a people who are a blessing, right? And we can't really do that if we're sitting there shouting judgment, you know, at all the weed people. Um, so Jesus prohibits us from rendering those kind of ultimate verdicts about who's in and who's out, who's the sheep and the goats, who's good and bad. But, as I hinted last week, there also seems to be in Scripture this responsibility that we have to not be foolish and to discern between good and evil in a healthy, loving way that advances the kingdom but doesn't subject people to spiritual abuse. We don't want to be naive, right? I don't want to be naive. Uh, we want to be smart, uh, but not at the expense of people, the people that Jesus loves so much that he came and died for them. And so Jesus tells us an interesting thing. He says this in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus tells his disciples, he's given them a heads up. 
And he says, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. That's the way he calls it, sheep into the midst of wolves. And the reason he says this is precisely because what this reminds us of is that we were never called to just build a bunker around the church, right? To, to grab us and our families and just go cut ourselves off from the outside world as we wait around for the second coming, right? No, no, no. We are meant from the very beginning, he makes it plain that we are to be active and involved in the world as his hands and feet. And then look at what he says. So be what? Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So there is a way, apparently, for the church to be wise and innocent or loving at the same time. That sounds easy, right? No, <laughs> that's not easy at all because we're not angels, right? The reason is we're dealing, number one, with our human nature all the time, but also there is this tension, and it's recognized in Scripture, this tension that we are to be, uh, the, word, the phrase that's used a lot is in the world but not of it, right? We've, we say that, so we are in the world but we are not of the world. And that's the phrase Jesus uses several times over in John uh, chapter 17. And what makes that complicated, you know, that right there. In the way he says it uh, two or three times, just this one conversation here. What makes that complicated, uh, I think is the word world there. The word world, that's hard to say, is used different ways in scripture. And so you get like in John 3.16, what does it say? For God so what? Loved the world. Okay. But then in 1 John 2.15, we're told do not love the world or anything in the world. So what gives with that? Uh, James 4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? That sounds bad to me. I don't know. So that's not super helpful when we're told to simultaneously love the world and to hate the world. So we're going to do your favorite thing. I know you got up this morning and said, man, there, there better be some Greek this morning. Yes, let's get our Greek on, right? Let's get out the Windex and spray it on our elbows and exegete this thing. That was a super obscure movie reference for some of you. The word world is this word cosmos with a K. And there are three different meanings in scriptures uh, to the word world. Much like in English, we use it in different ways too. In Genesis 1 and Acts 17, sometimes world can just mean the planet Earth. That's the created order. Like he literally created the world, right? This crust and mantle and atmosphere and all this kind of stuff. Um, in Acts 17, it says the, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So in, in this sense, the world is good. This is the thing he created and back in Genesis and he said... This is good. I did a good job. It can also mean, number two, the human population of the world, right? And this is where sometimes it'll say, it'll use the phrase, the nations. The nations, go into all the nations. So when Jesus says um, in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the good news, he's saying go into all the, the people groups, right? He's not saying literally go to the bottom of the ocean and the top of the mountains. He's saying go to the people groups. So he's speaking planet, he's, he's speaking anthropologically, not planetarily here. Um, preach the gospel to all humanity. He's talking about the human world. But then there's a third distinction, and this is one we, we come up against too, and this is the one we're warned against, that the world can also mean 
the, those human systems of culture that are actively hostile to and alienated from God, right? So in 1 John 2, 15, James 4, this is what it's talking about. It's the systems that consist, it can consist of just fallen, you know, human nature, sort of our collective unredeemedness, you know, just, just our, our badness. The, the fact that just your average, you know, even your, your good next door neighbor who's a decent fella, he's basically at his heart, if he's not a Christ follower, he's basically selfish and greedy. That's just kind of what we are, right? Without Jesus, we, we operate from that premise. Basically, everything we do is, is uh, from a, a self-concerned place. It can also mean those systemic evils in the world. There's war and there's racism and things like that that are controlled by principalities and powers. And so when it says for us to love the world, it's always talking about the human order. You could just know, oh, it's talking about the human order, love the world. When it says to hate the world, it's talking about that organized system of, of defiance and rebellion that, that stands in opposition to God. Make sense so far? Yeah. And what makes things a little even more murky for us too, and you know, sometimes we can misunderstand this, is when it talks about world in that third sense, it doesn't just mean non-Christian culture. Uh, not everything has to be stamped with a, a fish, a Jesus fish, or a cross, right, to, to, to be good. There's all sorts of things that are good, that are true and beautiful and just created by image bearers of God. They aren't explicitly Christian, right, like a, a good breakfast taco. It's not Christian, but it's very good. It's very good. Um, so some things in the world are just sort of morally neutral, like ice cream and baseball, right? They're just neutral. They're not Christian, but they're good. And then there are things that are even there, we could say, well, they're kind of in a gray area. You know, the concepts like uh, capitalism or social media. You can use those in very, you can go down the dark side, or you can use them in good and productive life-giving ways, right? Just depends on how far you're taking them. Money is a great example. The Bible talks about money. Money's not evil, but the love of it is, right? So the love of money, the root of all evil. So we want to reject sinful forms of it. And, uh, but we, that takes wisdom, doesn't it? Right? All this stuff is making things muddy and murky, and it takes wisdom. We don't like that kind of stuff. We, want some, we just want some rules, but, but it takes some wisdom. And, of course, there's things that just aren't good or neutral that are just plain wicked and antichrist in any amount, you know, like porn or racism or something like that. That's just, that's just bad. You don't need a little bit of it. You need none of it, so it's bad. So Jesus' parable, when he is talking last week, in this parable, he says, you, you, you just cannot sit in judgment of the world. Your job, my job, is not to pull the weeds in the world. Meaning, we are not to render ultimate judgment about who are the sheep and who are the goats, who's the good, who's the bad, who's the saved, who's the not saved, right? Because we can't see in the heart. And that's just not us. And Jesus is super clear about that. But we do need wisdom when it comes to the culture we live in, because we are in the world, but not of it. We're in this world, and what's good or bad, it makes it difficult because it's very rarely labeled. The good and bad don't wear a t-shirt to say I'm good and I'm bad, or I'm bad, right? There's no glowing sign over their head that tells us which tribe they belong to. And so the question that we wrestle with is how do we navigate culture without condemning people, right? That's probably the way I would just title this right now. How to navigate culture without condemning people. Now, 
I want to look at some other famous words of Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 6. Maybe one of the least practiced teachings of Jesus. Uh, Luke 6.37 says, do not what? Judge. And you won't be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Man, isn't that the truth? This is just human nature right here. In other words, whatever, whatever measure you use at me, man, I'm going to be glad to use it back at you. You know, and, and just think about how horrible that is. Well, we're, we're all in trouble. Now, the word judge. Um, I want to talk about that word judge for a second. A second, second Greek word. Yes. Second Greek word, guys. Your dreams are coming true. It's the word krino, right? Let's say that word together. Krino. That's a fun word. Krino. Um, it literally means to separate or distinguish. Krino, right? So uh, I've got a friend who likes to take out the red M&Ms. They are crinoing their red M&Ms. Just get those red M&Ms right out of there. We don't even need them. Just the rest of the M&Ms are good, but we're going to crino those red ones out. That's crino, to separate or distinguish. This word, we get words like criticize, uh, crit critic, critique, criticism, discriminate, to crino. It's all about separating. And Jesus here, he's talking about a very specific kind of separating, kind of like the word world. There's some different meanings going on here. The kind of crino that Jesus outlaws is the kind that leads to condemnation. So it's this condemning judgment. We can think of this as condemning judgment. We'll just use that word judgment, right? And if you wonder what condemning crino is, because there is a good, there's a good crino, a bad crino separates people. Just remember that bad crino separates people. It's judging people. Good, bad, sheep, goats, wheat, weeds, right? You get the idea? Judgment of this kind is the kind that separates ourselves from other people. Because what, what, what the reason why this is wrong is because what we end up doing, because we're humans, we place ourselves over them. We do this from a posture of superiority. We place ourselves over them. We look down upon them and we feed off the contrast. We can't even help it. Love, which we're commanded to do, it ascribes unsurpassable worth uh, to another person. And that every single person is a priceless image bearer of God. Even if we object to something that they do or something about them, we love them. But judgment, it feeds off the contrast. Now there's a good crino. Good crino, okay. And this is usually translated in the Bible as discernment. It's actually the same Greek word, but it'll be translated differently in some of our scriptures. In the Old Testament, where it talks about this concept, it'll very often use the term wisdom. So if you see a lot of things in the Psalms or Proverbs, you know, it just gives these good little affirmations about using wisdom. In the New Testament, it uses the word discernment. The good crino separates things or ideas or sometimes even spirits. But it doesn't separate people, it separates things or ideas. Like a, kind of like a movie critic. A movie critic will say, this is a good movie, this is a bad movie. That's lame, right? Or, or as Christians, we can say, well, this seems like a good way to live. That's not a good way to live, right? This is a good way to spend money. This is a bad way to spend my money. The difference is that bad crino condemns people. It looks at someone's outsides and it judges the insides. It renders a verdict on the inside which we cannot see. 
It renders a verdict about their motives, about their character, which we are told precisely not to do because we are not God and we can't see somebody's soul. And my goodness, we, we do this all the time, right? I'm, I'm just right here in this camp with you. I'm just right here in the camp with you. I'm not like up on high, I've conquered this thing. We do it all the time. We see somebody's outside and what we are seeing is the tiniest, thinnest snippet of who they are or their day or what just happened before we came across it, right? We are seeing the tiniest snippet. They could be having a bad day, it doesn't matter. We see this little snippet of somebody's outside and then we render a verdict, don't we? Right, that person cuts you off, you know everything about what kind of person that is, right? That, they probably, yeah, I know, I could, yeah. And the, and the problem, according to Jesus, is that all of our judgments are designed to, what they really are there for is to prop up our own sense of self-worth, right? It's all self-serving. We're not passing judgment to make them better. We're passing judgment to make ourselves feel better. It's all self-serving. I'm never judging anybody to make myself feel worse. I'm always judging people to make myself feel better by comparison. We feed off the contrast. Now, there's times where, you know, we can compare ourselves to other people. That's also unhealthy, you know, and that'll end up making ourselves feel better like we get on social media. Oh, they look like they're having such a bad, a good life and I'm terrible. But judgment, this judgment mechanism, according to James 2.13, he says it, boy, so plainly, he says actually judgment inhibits mercy. You just, you can't, love someone and be condemning them at the same time. You can't love them and condemn them at the same time. So what Jesus rules out for us, he rules it out. No gray area is the kind of judgment that separates people that says, this one's untouchable. This one, they can't possibly be saved, right? This one is not worth my time. They're not worth my effort or energy. That's not discernment. That's not good, Crino, where I'm evaluating things for how well you know, this way of living is in harmony with kingdom. Now, as a church, we want to bring this back to us as a church. That's what this series is really about, who we are as a community. We have been given a firm instruction by Jesus Christ that we are not to go pulling weeds out in the field. That's the world. But to work for the good of the field, the good of the world. And if we confuse good crino with bad crino, we become judging people, right? And what happens? What also, what ends up happening is if we judge out there in the world, we bring that in the house and we start judging each other in a terrible, horrible ways, right? I would just guess if you pulled the average person on the street and gave them a choice uh, about what the church is really known for between love and judgment, what do you think they would pick, right? It's a no-brainer, obviously, yeah. And how many religious environments have you ever been in uh, where, where there's, there's just been almost no love or mercy, right? It's just been all judgment. It's like that's what they were built on. Those are, those are not good places to be in. So I wanna talk about how we can discern with each other, uh, with, with each other but not judge. 
uh, because that seems to be what's, what's really missing. We live in this world that is so full of condemning judgment. In the church and outside the church, I'm the, the, you know, the secular world, it, it's all about condemning judgment out there, right, too? I mean, it's just cancel culture, wokeism, all that kind of, all those words, you know, you hear. It, it's all condemning judgment, and the last thing we want to do is uh, add to that. We don't need to be a part of that. We have a role to play, and yet we are still called to be discerning. So, point number one. Who are we, uh, sorry about this popping, I'm trying to keep it still. Who, for, first, first point, who are we as Christians to discern with? When we're doing our discerning, who do we discern with? Do we, are, so we, are we supposed to share our discerning things with the world, with strangers? No, by the way. Our discerning, the Apostle Paul tells us, happens in the church. So discerning number one, discerning happens in the church with each other, okay? Have you ever had somebody um, that you don't know, or that you barely know, and they share a discerning with you, about you? Does that go well? Um, I, I'm no celebrity, thank the Lord. Pretty much nobody in the world knows I exist except for you guys, and I'm just so happy about that. Um, but, but I've had people like that I really don't know, that I barely know, like declare something uh, about me online, like in the name of the Lord, or, um, or they'll stop and like say something, that, you know, discern, they'll say something to me and, and tell me what they think of me and give me their discernment about me and, and guess how much attention I pay to all that? Zero, right? Not because I'm unloving or mean or something like that. I just, I, I don't. If God wants to speak to me, he will not use random people. I, I, that's just, and I didn't always know that too. I mean, I used to just take every discernment. Oh, you got something? Okay. You know, just internalize it and feel terrible, right? But no, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't use random people. There's a whole tribe of people, for instance, in my life that I've invited into my life to actually speak into my life um, and hold me accountable. They actually know all my weaknesses and those are the folks that God uses to speak. And so we begin this process of discernment by saying, okay, we're not sharing our discerning with the world. Just announcing our Christian position on some, even some big cultural issue or whatever. That, that doesn't do anything. Uh, remember, we are just going to come at this and expect Christians to act like Christians and non-Christians to act like non-Christians. It's going to be a whole lot easier to love them if we just come at it expecting that, right? Can I, get, can I get an A flipping men from somebody on that? <laughs> Amen. Okay. We do not hold non-New Covenant people to New Covenant standards. Just don't do that. That doesn't do them any good. It doesn't do them any good. Even if you get, you, you ever think about, even if you get like a non-Christian or, you know, whatever you want to call it, if you get them to like behave like Christians, that's not how you get to heaven, right? That doesn't do them any spiritual good, right? Just behave better. It, all it does is make me feel better. Um, our goal, as we, we said earlier, is to help one another become more like Jesus. We want to help one another. And by that, I, I'm assuming, you know, you're a brother or sister, that you're, you're pointed towards Jesus. And you, I, you may be some, anywhere on that journey. That's fine with me. I don't care where you are on that journey. If your face has just been turned and you're pointed towards Jesus, he's at the center. Man, we are all going to the same place, right? That's, that's, that's who we're. I'm going to help you. Uh, you're going to help me. Um, but that's who we want to focus on. We don't want to, we don't care what the world thinks about stuff, right? I mean, forget about who's saying Merry Christmas. L let's put Christ back in Christians, right? 
Amen? So that when people come in this place who are not part of this thing, our desires, when they come in here, they actually experience something different from what's out there. Like, whoa, this is like a no judgment zone. This is like no shame zone. What's going on here? Right? And that can't happen if we're shaking our fists at the, all the, you know, weed people uh, by our own measurement and, and measuring our own self-righteousness by, you know, the lowest common denominator. Look how much better I am than these two truly awful people. <laughs> but when it does come find time for discerning, so the object of our discernment is each other. It's not strangers. It's not the world. It's not non-Christians. It's each other. We see this pattern all throughout the New Testament. Okay, point number two. Think about this, the churches in that New Testament culture where Paul, those churches he addressed, how big were those churches? Probably pretty small compared to, you know, what we have today. Um, You know, the church historians tell us most of them were like 20 people tops, whatever you could fit into a living room. That was the size of the churches. You were meeting regularly together. On the and, and, it, and what does that? What that does is you're on each other. You're on the inside of each other's lives, right? In a way that we really can't be here today. So like you way over there and you way over there. Y'all are both lovely people, but you're really not in on each other's life, right? In a way that if we get in a small group or something like that, you kind of really get to know each other. So what this helps us know is if if you're in a relationship with other Christians, and there is an invitation extended there to share your discerning with somebody that's great do it that's holy right but only then it's one of the biblical reasons behind you know home life groups and the other small groups that we have we want to create those environments where we can kind of get in on each other's life you know I want, I want those people in my small group. I want them all up in my business, right? I want them to know what's going on. I can share my struggles. I can get them to pray for me and they can share with me things and concerns. That biblical discerning happens within the confines of relationship, which means that we're talking about, we're just talking about a smaller circle of people. Sometimes in the New Testament, we do see instances where uh, there is a sin that is just like so egregious, like even the pagan world would look down on it, and it had to be addressed by the whole church, and sometimes, you know, you get the, the big daddies, the apostles get involved. When someone is like so unrepentant, they're, they're unwilling to even try to live in the way of Christ. Those are instances where someone is just doing more harm than, than good to the rest of the body of Christ. Um, you know, it's like in kids' world, where's that one kid that just, you know, you finally got to go, you got to go, we're going to have to get your parents, right? <laughs> um, sometimes we're like that, we're that kid. But I'm telling you, this is super, super rare. That's super rare. It's not something we usually encounter. Um, this is not just somebody who has a different conviction than you. This isn't somebody who just reads a scripture differently than you and has a different take on it. This isn't even somebody who's struggling with sin, but they are repentant and their face is turned toward Jesus. They're letting Jesus grow and change them, right? The church is a safe place for that. We want all of those people here, right? That's the part of unity, not uniformity thing. And unless you're dealing with something like the Corinthian church was dealing with, Paul had to deal with this one, this guy was like sleeping with his mother-in-law, this terrible thing, and the church wouldn't do anything about it. Nobody would call him out, and so Paul had to step in. Otherwise, the invitation of Scripture is for us to be patient with one another. Patient with one another. 
to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to comfort one another, to bear with each other's, to share each other's burdens. And so to do that, love has to take the lead. Love has to take the lead for us to properly engage in good crino, that discernment, and not bad crino, condemning judgment. Love has to take the lead. Or even in Christian circles, it'll get really nasty really quick. So the first point is we do it in community together. The second point is that the community we're talking about isn't a community of hundreds. It's a community of a few. All right, I'm not going to drag anybody on stage here on a Sunday morning to like start doing some discerning with you. Just, you can, you can sit easy. That is for a small, trusted circle of people who love each other and have given each other permission to hold one another accountable. It's very important. And like I said, there are several people in my life They know my weaknesses, they know my frailties, they know my failures, and they have no hesitation in calling me out on this stuff. And when they do, oh man, I listen, I listen. But we tend to be far too free with our discernments with with just everybody. Okay, so that was one and two. Number three, the big question becomes, okay, okay, so let's say we're discerning with each other. We're, 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 We're dealing with Christians, we're in a small circle. It's this person, they've, you know, invited me into their life. I'm in their life. They're in my life. How do we do it properly? How do we do it with the right heart? And here, Jesus just hits us with some really hard truth upside the head. This is right after the conversation we just had. He says this in Luke chapter 6. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And this, this, I practice this even less than the do not judge command. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye. When you yourself have a two by four in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you'll see clearly to remove that speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is so genius here. He he does it. Just imagine that there's this speck of dust in your eye. It's barely noticeable. And out of my eye is this two by four that just stretches from me to you. Boom, right? And I'm going to come help you out. That's how I am supposed to see my sin in relation to yours. So if I'm ever going to discern with you, if I'm ever going to discern with you, if we're in community together, if you've invited me into your life and I'm like, hey, friend, you know, I'm concerned that this way of life, this pattern of life isn't the way of the kingdom. How do I share that? The answer is, I share it by recognizing whatever standard I'm using to judge you applies to me, and I'm already guilty. I am already guilty. So I'm never going to come to you as a superior. I always come as a fellow struggler at these things. Not only that, I'm going to consider my own sin way worse than yours because The fact is, I know my thoughts. I don't know your thoughts. I know my thoughts. I know my secret sins. I I don't know anything about you. So as far as I know, I'm literally the biggest sinner in the room. And I I have sat with some notorious sinners, and it is glorious, right? Because I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, I'm worse. As far as I know, I'm worse. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. I am the chief of sinners. The Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Now imagine if a whole group of Christians decided that their sin was worse than anybody else's. 
all those little pet issues that we are so offended by in our world? What if we just assumed our sin was worse? How beautifully would that community go and portray the gospel of Jesus to the world? And when we're in community with people that we trust, we're mutually submitted with, right? We, and have, they've given us that, that privilege of sharing our discernments. It's from a plank eye posture. The attitude that says, I love you. I want the best for you. And first of all, I'm going to assume that I am just as bad, maybe in a different area, but I'm just as bad. And, and so here's what's concerning me, right? That's going to go a whole lot further. So on one hand, we're to completely forsake this, this very judging, condemning spirit that's so pervasive in the church community and how we relate to the world. There's, there's so much anger and animosity uh, I mean, that Christians just have toward the world today, right? And I'm not saying there's not things to be angry about. For sure, there is. Uh, but when we are known for our anger towards people above all else, man, that is a problem. That's not from Jesus. That's not your righteous indignation saving the world. No way. We think we have it bad today. I have to have to remind myself of the world that Jesus lived in. Jesus lived in a, a society. They were constantly, on a daily basis, victimized by deep injustice. I mean, he lived in an invaded country with the invading soldiers just walking around, slapping people anytime they wanted to. That's the world he lived in. Terrible abuse from its own government. Deeply troubling amounts of idolatry and religion that had gone amok. Paganism everywhere. Pagan idols everywhere. I mean, th this is the world Jesus is walking around. And then you look at the gospel. Look at his words. Look at the things he addressed. Almost all of his anger, if not all of his anger, was directed toward religious hypocrisy and Pharisees. Oh, he got angry at the Pharisees. Religious hypocrisy. You never see him railing on the Romans one time, right? That I can think of. Every sinner he came across, every Roman soldier or Jewish prostitute, he would love first. He came from a posture of love. He would love them first. He would heal indiscriminately. He would forgive them lavishly. And then lastly, he would call them to sin no more. He would call them to repentance. And he would do that last. After he had already blessed them. So if we really want to be a church that starts getting serious about calling out the sin around us, okay, but we, we better start with the, you know, with the two sins that are most condemned in the New Testament. You know what those two sins are? Judging others and gossip more than any other sin mentioned in the New Testament. Let's start there. Let's call it out. It's going to get awkward real quick. <laughs> Judging others. Hooray! Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Gossip! Well, never mind. There's so many passages in the New Testament that warn us against judgment. There's so many that warn us against judgment. And what's ironic is we, you know, I'm the same way, we, we tend to want to zero in on the ones that seem to give us some permission to judge. Why? Because we're human beings, but we're saved by grace, and we want to forget that as soon as possible, right? 
Amen. Now, let me stop for a second. Let me give two side notes to all of this. Two side notes, okay? A little time out. Uh, number one. What was my number one? I have to look. Here we go. Okay. Number one. Uh, there is mentioned in scripture something called a spiritual gift of discernment. Have you heard of this? Yes. Okay, so there's a spiritual gift of discernment. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 12. It's, it's listed among uh, gifts of the Spirit. Uh, that we, we see a lot of these gifts uh, flow. We saw one flow today with Ms. Pat. There's a gift of prophecy, a gift of uh, knowledge, a word of wisdom, these different gifts. And one of those is the gift of discernment of spirits. There's a gift of discernment of spirits. Um, and so we're not, I know we're not really focusing on that today. If we do a series on the, some of the gifts of spirit, we can come back to that a little more. But let me just say a couple of things about that. Number one, just like everything we've said, the gifts of the spirit are for the church, in the church. They're in the church and for the church. Those gifts of the spirit are a gift. They're, you know, they're not like, ah, they're, they're gifts. They're good things that God is, the Holy Spirit has bestowed on the church for our benefit. They're gifts to us. They're to be used here. So we don't like march on the Capitol with our gift of the spirit of a discernment of spirits. It's, that's for us. We, we use that together. Uh, second thing about that is um, the gift of, the, of discernment is really interesting. It's really fascinating. It almost functions as, a, you can think of it as a sort of checks and balances to the other gifts. So we have the gift of prophecy, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, these sort of gifts, tongues and interpretation. The gift of the discernment of spirits can also be like, yes, that is, I, I, yeah, I sense that that is right on. That is the Holy Spirit. Or like, hmm, I don't think that was quite the right spirit that came from, right? So that's a gift of discernment. It's like the Supreme Court can tell the Congress that law you passed, that, that's not constitutional, right? So it's kind of like a checks and balances. I'd think of it that way. Third thing about that too is... The gifts of the Spirit, if you, if you do a study on those things, are beautiful gifts of the Spirit that certain people operate in at certain times, right? So not everybody operates in them at all, all the time. So it's not something that everybody has all the time. So that's, that is kind of a, a separate thing, the gift of discernment, and we, we value that and we love that gift to flow in the church. Amen. Second thing, second little side note. Over here, the book of Hebrews uh, tells us that uh, there is a maturing process all Christians go through. So when you say yes to Jesus, you start walking with him, and you're growing with him, and you're, you're praying, you're reading your Bible, and you're communing with other, other you know, brothers and sisters in the faith, and they're sharpening you, and you're maturing, you're growing in your faith. This is a beautiful thing. And the book of Hebrews tells us that uh, over time, we can get better at discerning. We all can get better at discerning good from evil. And so that's a beautiful thing. And, um, and that is something that is good to pray for. You know, include that in your prayers. Lord, help me to be better at discerning good and evil so I'm not deceived. Lord, give me, just give me that discernment, Lord God. Help me to discern. That is a beautiful and proper thing to pray for. So what I would just say from a very practical, pastoral uh, place right now, a little piece of wisdom to give you. This is from the, the book of Scott, chapter one. Just assume you're not fully there yet. Amen. So we're praying for it. I'm praying for it. I'm praying for that discernment. Sometimes my discerner is off. I got to tell you, right? Pray for it, but, but assume you're not fully there yet. That will help you approach other people with, with humility. Don't just trust your gut on everything. Sometimes your gut is stupid. 
Am I right? Man, my gut gets it wrong. Oh, I, I was reading this thing. You know, we talked, I forgot what well, it was like a year ago in some series. We talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Do you remember what that is? That's this uh, thing they have. It's a bias that all humans suffer from. It's, it's our, our bias to overestimate our ability in some area. And we all have this. We all, have the, we all overestimate our ability to read people. And they've done all these studies. Like, people are terrible lie detectors. But we all think, like, oh, I can read people, right? Oh, I can tell when someone's lying to me or not. You can't. You really can't. Like, some, you'll get it right 50% of the time. It's just, it's just, a, just a human fact. So we, we come at it assuming that. And a lot of times what I realize is, you know, my gut will be like, hmm, yeah, I'm sensing this about that thing that person said. But really, it's just biased against things I don't like. It's biased against new ideas, right? It's just biased. Things that I don't understand. Like, I don't really get where they come from, so that can't be right, right? Or, or that's, uh, has, I have a different experience, or I'm just ignorant in that area, so I'm just going to say that that's wrong, right? So we just, we all have that bias. Uh, I, was, I was shocked that even the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, he says he, he doesn't even judge himself. His, his own judgment is so, so flawed. He says, just don't judge anything before it's time, Wait till Jesus comes back. He'll bring to light what's hidden and will expose people's true motives. Right? So we get this from the Apostle Paul. So if the church truly desires to be a prophetic voice in the world, and we do, we want to be a prophetic voice in our nation. We want to call out wickedness among us. Let's start with our own. Let's start with our own sin, our own wickedness. Because choosing to sit in the seat of judgment, I'm telling you that is a throne built for one. And it is one much greater than you or I. Amen. Amen. So today, uh, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. If you have your communion element, elements, you can be getting those ready. If you didn't grab any as you walked in, there's some on the table here. I think there's some on the table back there. If you need to grab some, uh, you're welcome to. Just get those ready. Take out the little cracker. and We're going to get the little juice ready. I want to do something today. I thought very appropriate for the season we're in. We're in the season of Lent. And that is to practice repentance. I want to practice repentance. I have to say, this is something I, I didn't really grow up really doing. I mean, I would ask God to forgive me if I did something wrong. But, but just to kind of like build this into the rhythms of my life, a rhythm of repentance. And you don't have to do this today, but it's an invitation. And, you know, it's one of the things, like I told you, you know, you don't have to, like, do, do Lent if you're not a Lent guy or girl. Uh, but season of, the season of Lent, what it does for me, it is a reminder to me that repentance is not just a, a single act that we do one time, you know, when we give our heart to Jesus. It is a continuous journey. It's a lifestyle. Over in 1 John, keep in mind, this is written to Christians, it's not written to the world, it's written to Christians. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. That doesn't sound like a good place to be in making God out to be a liar. So the New Testament church, when we look at our history that we grew from, 
they regularly practiced repentance. They did this not to get saved over and over. It's not to get saved or because, you know, you need to grovel before God to get on his good side. But number one, because we're commanded to in scripture, but also because repentance is a practice that it grows us more and more into the image of Christ. It grows us into the image of Christ instead of the image of Caesar. We need it. We repent not so God will love us. We repent because we are loved by God in recognition of the grace that he's given us, right? I repent for the same reason I tell my wife I'm sorry, even though she knows I'm, I love her and I know she loves me. I'm still going to say it, right? I repent regularly because it is formative. It forms in me a humble, a contrite heart. Uh, over in 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. And it goes on to say, it brings repentance without regret. Now, that kind of is different than what we would imagine. We, we just think, well, that just sounds like a really like depressing, condemning kind of thing, repenting. No, it brings repentance without regret. So it's not about living under condemnation or that I'm not really saved, so I better repent again. He says this sort of repentance is formative, and this is what we mean by that, formative for a believer. He says it produces earnestness. That's like a passion and a longing to see justice done. Repentance, it, it, it makes us better people. I also repent because it frees my soul from that toxic cycle of shame. Because shame, you know, a good therapist will tell you, shame is about keeping stuff hidden, keeping it pushed down. I don't even want to go there. Well, that's, what, that's where shame grows like a mushroom, right? Repentance brings it out. It, it sets us free. And then lastly, and this is maybe one of the most important reasons when we're talking about us as a church, I repent regularly because unless I am a repentant person, I can't truly be a forgiving person. It's only by recognizing my own need for regular repentance Will I find others worthy of forgiveness? And our desire at Generations is to be a, a forgiving community of forgiven people. We want to be a forgiveness machine around here, right? We just want to be forgiving each other left and right. A forgiving community of forgiven people. And the only way we can do that, first, we have to be a repentant community. To be a forgiving community, we've got to be a repentant community. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance. And um, here's the hard part that I'm going to ask of you. As we're sitting here, I want you to think of an area where you have perhaps been guilty of judgment, a condemning judgment. And it might be someone as personal as like a parent or, or a spouse or an ex-spouse or a friend, someone who has so offended you that it, it sounds offensive to even imagine asking for forgiveness for judging them, right? Because you're like, well, they deserved it. It might be somebody less personal. It might be somebody you don't like know personally. It might be something like a political issue. It could be the president. It could be the former president. It could be a group of people, you know, those people, those people out there who are pushing that issue or this issue the people you are pretty sure they're responsible for like bringing down democracy, right? They're responsible for, for higher prices and high taxes and crime and 
Probably hair loss, we can't be sure, right? Those people out there. Um, it could be anything. Anything that comes to mind, anyone that comes to mind instantly when you think, who do I automatically condemn? Just where does my mind go? I don't even have to work at it. I don't need to know all the facts. I don't need any like spiritual discernment. I don't need to ask the Holy Spirit. Nope, they're the enemy. Who's that person? Who are those people? Now again, this is not about discerning whether an idea is good or not or whether a policy is good or not. I'm not talking about that. It's about, it's about setting yourself up above people where we say, no, that person is untouchable. That person, uh, there's no way they're an image bearer. We never say those things out loud, right? But there's the contempt that we have for them. It's off the chart. And what happens is we do it so that our own sins by comparison are absolved to their, in comparison to their sins. So I want you to picture that person, that group of people. You hold them in your imagination. And as you're holding them in your imagination, you're also holding these elements, these symbols of the body the blood of Jesus. And as we pray, I want to invite you to repent, to allow God's Spirit to set that person free from your condemnation. And what it's going to do is set you free from the prison of judgment. And to allow God, we're just going to ask God to very gently and lovingly remove you from his chair. Because it's just built for him. The only judgment we're allowed to render about people is that they are an image bearer with unsurpassable worth because Jesus saw fit to die for them. That's the only judgment we're allowed. So as we take communion with that person or that group in mind, here's the hard part. I want you to pray blessing over them. And if you're like, I don't want to do this, (laughs) maybe that's a good sign that this is a good idea. Because we're never going to be this community of God that if we don't learn how to refrain from condemning judgment, as James says, judgment cuts off mercy. It cuts it off. It cuts it off. It cuts us off from love. We can't love when we're judging like that. And if love is going to be our number one, we've got to practice this. And so I'm going to pray. Uh, If you need some words to kind of put your feelings to, there's a On screen is a prayer that our brothers and sisters have been praying for literally hundreds of years. You can trust it. But you can pray to God any way you want. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, merciful God, we, your sons and daughters, confess we have sinned against you. We've sinned against our fellow man. Lord, we've sinned in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. God, I've sinned by what I've done, by what I've left undone. I freely admit that I have not loved you with my whole heart, Lord God. I've not loved you with my whole mind and soul and strength. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. We've not forgiven others as we've been forgiven. God, for all the times that we have sat on that throne of judgment that belongs to you and you alone, we are truly sorry. And we humbly repent. And we thank you, Lord. Through Jesus, we receive today your mercy and your forgiveness. Create in us a clean heart, O Lord. God, may we discern with each other without condemnation. 
May we just cheer each other on to become more like Jesus. May we love the world with an extravagant, unmerited, prodigal father kind of love. Today, Father, we bless them. We bless that person. Set us free to love even them. Set us free so we can delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The body of Christ, broken for you and for them. The blood of Christ, shed for you and for them. God, thank you. Lord, you know we need your help in this. This is hard stuff. So we pray for your spirit, Lord, to come. We thank you, Lord. This is the way. This is the way. It's not always easy, but as we walk together, Lord God, as we discern together and we love one another as this forgiving community of forgiven people, Lord God, meet us here. Open our eyes to your beauty every single day this week, I pray. In the name of the crucified and risen Savior Jesus, we pray. All God's people say, amen, amen. We're prayer partners. Y'all can come forward now. Would you stand to your feet with me today? These prayer partners we have down front would love to pray with you. If there's anything you have, any needs you have, someone, you just need somebody to share the struggle you're going with, or you need healing today, you need God to move, you need a miracle in your life, you need a, maybe it's a financial miracle, a relational miracle, somebody that you just, you know, you've got, you've got some struggles going on with, whatever that is. If today, maybe you've been far from God for a long time, and you just kind of want to take that step back. You just want to kind of make things good with Jesus again. They would love to lead you in that step. Maybe you've never been around Jesus before your whole life, and today you just want to say, yes, I'm in. Let's do this thing for the first time. Come forward and let them pray with you. They would love to lead you in that step. We love you guys so much. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you until we can all be together again. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.